fifth episode of Rogue Librarians, a podcast in which three librarians and sometimes a guest discuss banned books. We are your hosts, Marion, Dorothy, Alana, Winthrop, and we, we are the Rogue, Rogue librarians. librarians. We would love for you to participate in our discussion. Please visit us at theroguelibrarians.com if you would like to leave a comment or a question. We always like to start with, uh, you know, what what have we been reading? And so, um, Alon, I'm going to uh, pass it to you and let you uh, think about what it is. What would you like to share with us this week? Sure. Well, one book I really enjoyed from the past month was Husband Material, which is the sequel to Boyfriend Material. I don't know if any of you have already read this book. I have not. Um, it is great. Um Boyfriend material was much better, I thought, than the sequel. But I still enjoy the sequel. The character is fabulous. Um, the romance is great. Uh, I, I just love the two main characters. So it was a really fun time to get to spend more time with them. And how about you, Dorothy? I listened to a book called um, A Dream About Lightning Bugs. It's a memoir by Ben Folds, who was... Uh, ben Folds 5 was a band I enjoyed in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't know a lot of people are super familiar with. I love Ben Folds. Uh, well, the book is a lot of fun to hear. He reads it. Mm-hmm. So uh, he he was kind of a wild child. You know, he got himself in all kinds of trouble. He almost really just lucked into his career. So uh, it, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. What about you, Winthrop? So um, I've been reading In Transit by Diane E. Anderson. Um, which for those of you who remember from the last episode I was on, it's a similar theme, um, talking about non-binary issues. It talks about, from a more academic standpoint this time, less of a a novel format. Um, But it it basically talks about the history of queer theory, um, as well as sharing some author personal narratives that's kind of fit in to to craft a history of of queer theory, specifically relating to non-binary culture. Awesome. Great. And and so for me... um, I read another book that's on the banned books list, um, it turns out, but um, the author is Sarah J. Maas, and Sarah has written um, a, well many books, um, but the particular book I read is called A Court of Frost and Starlight, which is kind of a connector novella instead of sort of, sort of I guess it's sort of a standalone, but um, it goes in with her, um, there's a, a series that Sarah does called A Court of Thorns and Roses, and um, it's just pure um, fantasy and um, lots of non-human type creatures and um, love and the solstice and just a, um, a really wonderful, fun read. So um, I kind of, um, along with the book that we are currently talking about in our podcast today, um, I just really needed something light. So that that was uh, that was what I found. And I, I read it, um, listened to it. I have a long commute daily to my job. So it was a great um, book to listen to on on a long journey. All right. Well, Alana, let me pass it on to you now. Sounds great. Today, we will be discussing The Complete Mouse, A Survivor's Tale by Art Spiegelman, which in 1992 was the first and only graphic novel or memoir to win the Pulitzer Prize. This book was not intended to be written for young adults, but it is taught in many schools, so many young people read it 
According to a 2019 survey conducted by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, Mouse was the most read comic in classrooms in America, and Common Sense Media recommends it for people 13 and older. Interesting that, um, because when I read it, I said to myself, I cannot imagine a middle schooler voluntarily just picking up and reading this book. Completely. Graphic novel or no. Mm -hmm. I'm like... An old guy talking to his even older dad <laughs> about things that happened, you know, years and years ago. It just doesn't seem like the one that the kids are going to be pulling off the shelves. Yeah. Although, interestingly, um, I can picture kids picking it up. Um, I've taught in some schools where kids will pick up anything that's in graphic novel format um, and just be drawn to whatever the pictures are and may not know what it's about prior to getting into it. Um but I don't see them continuing to re read it. I would see them, you know, getting this, bored. Well, just it, it. I don't think it would hold their interest. It would turn them off because they wouldn't be mature enough to to understand the content. And I think that, I mean, that's one of the interesting things that I know about being a librarian, um, and and you um, you all as well is that kids are really good at censoring themselves. They know when a book is not appropriate for them and they, they just wouldn't continue on reading it. But I also want to make the comment that um, since, since it was Common Sense Media that um, said this book is uh, recommended for, for people 13 years and older, um, the same is true if you've uh, gone to Washington, D.C. to the United States Holocaust Museum and the exhibit, the main exhibit there is for, I believe, 14 and older, if, if I'm remembering that correctly. They do have a, um, a version for younger um, visitors to the museum that's called Daniel's Story, but it is a very much easier to, um, to take view of the Holocaust. And, um, and so I think that that's consistent. I think Common Sense Media is accurate in that depiction. And as you may have picked up on, if you didn't already know this, we will be discussing some of the horrors of the Holocaust today. So uh, please be aware of that and uh, skip this episode if you do not want to listen to that. Should we get into our summary of the book? two parts and the first part uh, is Art talking to his father about his experiences and it covers uh, before the war or well mostly before the war and certainly before the concentration camps. It's Yeah I think the first four years of the war because mm -hmm. he was in Auschwitz for the last right. um, 10 months of the war. Yeah so you really get this sense of all of the little changes you know that happened and uh, and the hardships that they went through even before incarceration and then the second half really picks up uh, when his uh, parents are in the concentration camps. Uh, and in the meanwhile, it's covering both his relationship to his parents, his own mental health, um, you know, issues of depression. Uh, those are sort of all sprinkled throughout. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and sort of um, the impatience that he has with his father as well, um, because they're obviously 
um, certain traumas, obviously, the obvious trauma that that his father has lived through and that have molded his uh, t- uh, his views on on how you save things and how you use things and mm-hmm. and you know not wasting money and um, just views of people in the world and how you do things that that were formed that I think are very eye opening to mm-hmm. Art um, the son Artie yeah as he's called in the book and if you didn't already know this the different groups of people are presented as different animals so yes. Jews are mice. Germans are cats, Poles are pigs, pigs. French, French are people are frogs, <laughs> yes, and um, Americans are dogs. Yeah, yeah. That's mainly who we see represented. For now, we were going to go on and talk about why it has been censored. So this book was originally serialized from 1980 to 1991, but it made the news a lot recently when a Tennessee school board voted to prevent it from being taught in the district's classrooms in January 2022. This is the McMinn County Board of Education. And it was part of the eighth grade curriculum. And even though the teachers and um, specialists in this area thought that it was appropriate for eighth graders, um, they the school board decided that uh, it had unnecessary use of profanity and nudity, and it depicted violence and suicide. So they removed it from curriculum for all of the years at the um, in that school district. And uh, in the New York Times afterwards, Representative Steve Cohen, who's a Democrat of Tennessee and the state's first Jewish congressman, said that censoring books about the Holocaust was a way to purge one's understanding of the horrors of what humanity is capable capable of. And he said, it's depressing to see this happen anywhere in this country. And when it comes to censoring an easy way to reach children and teach them about the Holocaust, it's particularly disturbing. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, this, this takes me back a little bit, if I can jump in on this for a, a second to, um, of course, I'm dating myself with my age, but when, when, Yugoslavia, the former country Yugoslavia, was having wars that were starting to to tear apart the country into the separate entities that currently exist, um, and um, and there were ethnic um, was it the Bosnians? Yes, it was. It was the ethnic Bosnians that were rounded up and put in camps, um, you know somewhat like um, the death camps of the Holocaust. Um, and and they were being recorded by the news. I mean, there were video cameras, you know, there recording these people that were incarcerated and, you know, and it was so reminiscent of, of this time period. And I remember people talking about, you know, we could never have another Holocaust. This could never happen again. Um, and particularly saying now because we've we've got the, these visual images on on international television screens that it could never happen again, um, and and I I just I pause and I think I I believe that it absolutely could happen again that um, that these that there these atrocities that happen I mean human beings are so capable of these kinds of atrocities. 
Um, and and it 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 just continues to go on in the history of the world and in the history of humanity. Oh well, yeah. I mean, the um, Hitler was impressed with how the Americans eradicated the and the uh, Canadians eradicated the, the Native Americans. Correct. They had a blueprint already. Yeah. Yeah, and that that wonderful, well, wonderful, but very, very difficult to read book um, by Isabel Wilkerson, Cast, um, really documents that very methodically um, with lots of of references about Mm -hmm. about Hitler and that. Yeah, and it's also worth noting too that it's it's not like in 1940s this that the footage was not also on newsreels. It wasn't on everyone's household the same way that you had later on with with successive genocides. But if you still went to the movies, for example, in the 1940s, this was on newsreels. This was in every newspaper in North America. Um, there's an exact number that was counted, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's in several hundreds in terms of the number of front page American newspaper stories about what was going on in Germany, in German occupied territory in Europe um, as well. Um, just to make sure that, that there isn't any impression that people didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, because they absolutely did. And the other thing, too, about, you know, can this happen again? It, it's it's a common um, question that gets asked in Holocaust discourse and genocide studies. It continues to happen. It, it happens repeatedly. I mean, Jewish people, myself included, would be one of the first to say that there is an ongoing genocide of the Uyghur Chinese people mm-hmm. going on right now. And does anyone care? No. It's, it's not. It's not in the media. I mean, it's there's, happened there's a Rwandan Rwanda, genocide. Yeah. I mean, you can count off on your fingers the different genocides that have happened since the Holocaust and none of it's had an effect on society. I feel no. mm-hmm. we, we tend to pick and choose what we decide to care about, which is why it's even more important that books like this are available because I think when you read mouse, you, you understand at least a little bit of what it was like. And mm-hmm. I think if you understand, you would hopefully be more likely to stop it from happening in the future. Yeah. But I also think that, when you read this this book, you you really have to put yourself in the position of some of the people that we encounter in this story, mm-hmm. um, this very this true story, this memoir, basically. Um, and and think, what would I do in that situation? Mm-hmm. I mean, there there were there were situations of kindness, and then there were situations of of betrayal that were caused by um, tremendous fear of, you know, what's going to happen to me if I'm kind to this person or if this person's found on my property or, you know, and, and I think we think about that all the time because, because we, we have a very strong self-preservation instinct as human beings. And, and we keep saying, oh, we need more compassion. We need more compassion. But, but in the end, when it comes to being compassionate about someone else or being, you know, uh, self-protective, I don't think any of us know what we would actually do in that situation. I think we know what we want to believe that we would do, but I don't think we know. And I think that, you know, to, to, um, to piggyback on what you just said, Alana, I feel like that's again, why reading widely and reading so many different perspectives and reading real painful things is so important because I think we need to we need to have that conversation in our own brains what would we do and what would we do in you know 
on either side of this? Would we survive as a victim? Would we survive as as someone um, who who's been put in this situation on you know no matter where where you fall in that? Yeah, and piggybacking off of that too, something I think it's it's really important to say too is for some people this is not a what if um, of what would I do if I was in this situation. Growing up Jewish, this is not an abstract concept of oh my gosh, you know, these poor people. What would I do if I were this is something that every Jew who grows up, no matter where you are in the world, grows up knowing from basically the, the day you're old enough to, to to understand the concept of what genocide is. It is understood that time and again, the Jews have an attempt to be wiped out. And it's something I don't think that people who are not Jewish can understand. I mean, obviously, if you are, if you are Rwandan, for example, or if you are, um, you know, any other you know group of people that's been through a genocide you understand to a degree you know through your own experiences but there's particularly because i feel like the unique horror of the shoah specifically the targeting of the jews and the number and the way that it went down that unless you grow up jewish like this has never been an abstract thought concept thought exercise of oh my gosh this is crazy it's something that is passed down through intergenerational trauma that is so real um and you mentioned earlier that you you feel like it would be hard to picture a kid picking up this book because it's a dad and his father having you know conversation but for people of my generation this is conversations we would have had with our grandparents around the dinner table exactly i mean this is i had a step-grandfather who was a holocaust survivor um growing up in synagogue we had holocaust survivors we talked to on a weekly basis i mean just so that I mean, this is not as far away distance wise in history as I think people like to pretend it is sometimes. This mm-hmm. is something that is very real and has repercussions still to this day. Mm-hmm. It certainly does. And then, you know, to bring in you know current day politics on top of this, I mean, one of the things I started learning about um, when I learned about Holocaust history, uh, the history of the Holocaust was, um, I, I learned that I, I believe it's the New York Times that every year there is a full page ad denying the, that the Holocaust happened. And I believe that is still happening, that there are a group of people who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. Um, and. OK, having been to Poland and um, walked through um, some of the some of the camps, Auschwitz being one of them and Majdanek being another one of them. And, and I mean, you feel the ghosts in these places when you walk through and it's not a pleasant experience and it's not meant to be a pleasant experience. It's meant to be, you know, it's hallowed ground in the sense that so many people died there. And, but it's meant to be, you know, cautionary. We need these places to stay there as museums so that people can see the evidence of, of what did transpire there. But it, it kind of reminds me in a sense of how, you know, in politics, there are people who are discussing, you know, what's fake news. That was a, a big um, uh, term that came up and has been, you know, uh, tossed around quite a bit. We hear it. We hear it a lot. Um, and and more recently, there are people who who are saying out loud and believe that January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol was fake. And, you know, so we really need to think about what what is the motivation of people who are trying to ban this book and lots of others that we have been discussing. Yes. And on that note, um, 
it's worth noting that since uh, up until about 2016, anti-Semitism in the country was getting less. And uh, at 2016 or so, um, it was on the increase. And it has been hugely increasing, mm-hmm. um, you know, a- along with other kinds of uh, racism as well. Yeah. So it's no surprise then that they are now trying to pull books. They're, if you look at the numbers, the books being banned are all LGBTQ+, people of color, characters with people of color, um, and, you know, Holocaust Jewish themes. Uh, and I forget what the rest of the list was, but... That's a lot of them. I, I, I can, when we get, if we want to dig into it, I can look at the graphics. Yeah. <laughs> and before we get into the historical context a little bit more, I thought I'd mention two other reasons why it's been banned in other places. Um, one is saying it's anti-ethnic or ethnic insensitivity. Um, and the other is unsuitable for young readers, which we've touched on already. And for example, in 2012, in the Pasadena Public Library, uh, Mouse was challenged over its portrayal of the Poles. And a Polish-American who was proud of his heritage said that it did not depict Poles well. So um, that's just one example. And um, after the Tennessee School Board's ban in January 2022, Art Spiegelman was invited to speak uh, as part of a webinar sponsored by faith-based organizations. This was back in February 2022. And during it, he said that he was initially suspicious of Mouse being taught in school, but that he, quote, has come to understand that children are very open to being educated and learning the reality of these topics. He also shared that he thinks the decision comes from parents and adults wanting to control their kids under the guise of protecting them. What needs to be exercised is empathy and intelligence. Books have to be contextualized. The teachers have to be trusted as much as the young people need to be trusted. And he said uh, a little bit later, I wasn't really trying to do anything other than share. I thought at the time, if I keep it honest and clear, it will do its job. I didn't want to dumb it down. It would have been impossible to do this only as a historical text extracting myself from it. The story is what makes it compelling to readers. And he said that it seems like some people want a, quote, fuzzier, warmer, gentler Holocaust that shows how great the Americans were, unquote. So he said that um, he believes this should still be allowed in schools because it can be very helpful for students. Yeah. Uh, Much like we want a fuzzier, warmer, or people, not we, uh, a fuzzier, warmer version of, uh, you know, slavery. And it wasn't really that awful. (laughs) Right. You want to put yourselves in a better light. Don't make us feel guilty about it. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that that is a big part of it. Like people don't want to feel any responsibility. They don't want to feel any guilt, even though America could have taken many more refugees and chose not to. Oh, yeah. Um, So, I mean, America should, I think Americans should feel guilty for not not helping rescue more people when they had the chance. Yeah. uh, We like to paint, uh, you know, I grew up really thinking of us as the great liberators you know, uh, defeating fascism, but, you know, we just kind of poked our heads in at the very end. <laughs> we did not want to get involved. We could have done more. You're yeah. kind of building off. There's a very famous quote, and it's escaping me who said it, but the quote is something to the effect of the Holocaust was a crime against humanity by humanity. 
that this was done by people and not just Germans. It was done. I mean, it's the collective blame of, of everybody right. when there's a crime against humanity. Yeah. And then the other quote that has come to mind in our discussion is, um, this is a very um, frequently um, quoted quote, um, that those who fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it. Um, and, you know, what that means is, well, to me, it means that we need to learn real history, not just his story, the story version, but from the perspective of the victors, but all the different angles and all the different perspectives of it. Um, and I mean, again, I just can't say that enough, how important it is to read widely differing perspectives mm -hmm. uh, in order to, to come to our own conclusions and not to buy a party line. Um, party lines are dangerous and, uh, and that's what contributed to the Holocaust happening in Germany and throughout um, Europe. Right. Dorothy, did you want to fill us in a little bit more on what you found about banning books in general before yes. we get into the historical context a little yes. more? Yes. Uh, so I'm looking at a website. Uh, the group is called Pen America, and they're, you know, an advocacy group for, you know, writing and freedom of information. And they've kind of looked at some of these titles that have been banned between July 1st, 2021 and June 30th, 2022. So recently banned books and uh so there's a couple of points i wanted to make i'll try to keep it snappy but uh lgbtq plus themes 41 percent of the books protagonists or prominent secondary characters of color 40 percent of the books sexual content 22 percent titles with issues of race and racism 21 percent 10% titles with themes of rights and activism, 9% biography, autobiography, or memoir, and 4% stories with religious minorities. So it, you know, if you look at a lot of what is happening in political discourse, these things are all what we're talking about uh, on various, you know, in various ways, in terms of rights, in terms of uh, freedoms. And, uh, Many times when people hear about banned books, they say, oh, these are, you know, the parents are concerned. They picked up the book and they looked at it and they are concerned. But what this group points out is that there are uh, at least 50 groups at the national level uh, involved in pushing for book bans across the country. The lawmakers are involved in a lot of these. Uh, they are providing, you know, they're getting local groups of parents together. So you might hear from a local group that they have been given talking points from these larger groups. So it is very much organized. Uh, and it, it is my personal belief. I mean, we all, we, I think we've talked about this before, but we know that kids have access to all of this on the internet. Uh, I talked to one librarian that said when the uh, big news stories about mouse being banned, they specifically mentioned, uh, you know, like a bear butt or something, the little mice in Auschwitz, and that kids were running to check out the book and look at that picture, right? That we know that banning a book increases its readership and its sales. Yeah, and they, the sales went up a lot for exactly. this book, yeah. Uh, so 
I think it's naive to say they don't want anyone to know about this. I think what they want to do is frame a conversation where we are actively arguing because it keeps people hyped up. It keeps people divided and pushed to the uh, extremes and that helps their political agenda, whatever that may be. Well, true. And if more people are going to look at the book and turning to those pages, then they're making it a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. I just think though, as many kids will get caught up in the anti-Semitic talking points uh, as want to defend the books, you know, the, the kids parrot back what they're hearing and they're going to parrot back all of these attitudes that, you know, half of this conversation are talking about. For sure. There, nobody loves uh, a conspiracy theory more than a middle schooler. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting because um, I used to work in a middle school as a school librarian, and I used to teach banned books week to to the kids so that they would know what a banned book was. And of course, you know, we always I always started with having them guess what was on the banned books list, and then I would show them the list that ALA published every year, the American Library Association, of what were the fre- most frequently banned books every year, and they were shocked. And I, and you know, I'd hear all these reactions, these oohs, oh my gosh. And then I would ask them, well, what are, what are you shocked about? And, you know, and they would raise their hand, well, I've read those books or, you know, however many of them they'd read. And I was like, right. And, you know, or they, you know, the obvious question, why was that book banned? You know, whatever it was. And I um, would pull up some research and explain to them why it was banned and, you know, they'd be horrified and, you know, and so then from that, it would we would lead into the question of, well, who should ban, you know, should books be banned or not? And if so, who gets to make that decision? And, you know, and the kids were, would kind of look at me like, well, you know, whatever. I mean, so but but it all came down to I said, you know, you're your minors and what your parents say for you is what is the most valid thing for you. But if I, as a parent, um, banned all books, for example, let's just be silly, that had trains on them, and you happen to like trains, would that be fair to you that you could not read any books about trains? And, you know, and they were like, well, no. And, and you know, so that brought into a whole larger discussion of who has the right to say what should be in or not in a library, you know, let alone in a child's hands. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think that's something that just needs to be, you know, people just need to be aware of that. You know, Uh, I also used to say to the kids, and I've probably said this before in our podcast as a librarian, and I'm sure that the two of you would agree as librarians, that if I'm doing my job correctly in collection development, there should be something in my library that offends every single person who comes in because I'm supposed to have books that represent all of the patrons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. That's definitely true, Marion. Well, Winthrop, would you mind filling us in on uh, a little bit of the historical context, especially for anti-Semitism? Absolutely. So I'm going to try to make this semi-concise. 
because I could do an entire podcast series just on history of anti-Semitism. Um, I guess where I want to start with this is I feel like a good definition of anti-Semitism would probably be useful, I think, for listeners. Um, so I'll use the most commonly accepted one, it's what's known as the IRA definition, the IRHA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Um, and their short version of the definition is anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and um, rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Um, and they have a much longer definition that is bullet point after bullet point, um, which I would encourage listeners to go check out for themselves. Um, but I think that gives at least a starting point. Um, and the other point I want to kind of start off with, um, there's there's a very famous, and listeners may be familiar, um, especially Jewish listeners, with Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, um, who describes anti-Semitism um, in his paper, The Mutating Virus, which basically describes anti-Semitism not only as one of the world's oldest hatreds, but also in the ways that it has evolved over time, that it is both a perception that Jews are less than dirt and they are also these supremely powerful beings that are pulling the strings behind the scenes and that it, it just whatever the the problem of the world is at the time people will find a way to blame it on the Jews and it will always evolve it ha always has it always will continue to evolve into this new form of hatred that it at its core is still hatred of Jewish people um so there's a tradition, there's a running joke within Jewish culture as well, that mo most, if not all, Jewish holidays revolve around the central theme of they tried to kill us, they failed, let's eat. Um, which, I mean, you could pick off anything. Purim is, a, is an easy one off the top of your head. You know, the Persians and Haman, they tried to kill the Jews. Let's kill all the Jews. Let's run them all up and let's kill them all. And then, oh, they, they failed. So so now we get to eat and have this joyous celebration. We eat hamantashen, which are these great cookies. And, you know, it's, it's this big, big party. It's, it's basically Jewish Halloween where you dress up in costume. And anytime Haman's name is said, you have a grogger. Besides the point, but... A grogger being a noisemaker. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What about, and um, Hanukkah is the same way. Hanukkah, I mean, this is, I think this is one of the things I want to get across is that anti-Semitism always has existed and it probably always will. And it's important to look out for it. Um, and because one of the most common misconceptions surrounding the Shoah, the Holocaust, is that anti-Semitism you know, it went away after the Holocaust, you know, it kind of went underground. The Jews got their little piece of land in the Middle East and, you know, everything's fine now. Um, and honest to God could not be further from the truth. I mean, anti-Semitism is at alarming rates to this day that make me scared as a Jewish person living in America, as someone who has a Jewish sibling living in Europe. Um, it is terrifying. Um, there are, is not a day that goes by that you know, there's not something in the news surrounding anti-Semitism. And there are so many more things that happen that just don't make the news. People aren't even aware of. If you asked, you know, what happened in Colleyville, Texas to average American, they wouldn't have a clue. You know, and there was a hostage situation there a couple months ago with a rabbi and four other Jews that were held at gunpoint. And, you know, the... Was Wait, it, was that with the synagogue that burned down? No, that was somewhere else. Okay. This one didn't burn down, um, 
but I forget, it was the FBI or the CIA, there was a SWAT team that was sent in by the federal government that the initial news reporting was that they had come in and saved the day. What it in reality happened is they showed up and were kind of hanging around and the rabbi had thrown a chair at the gunman and they all ran out. Um, and right. that part didn't really make it into the news, that it was the Jews who had to save themselves, ultimately. Um, and, I mean, the Pittsburgh shooting comes to mind. Um, there's just so many things that repeatedly will continue to happen um, that and, and I just encourage listeners to to be wary of anti-Semitism and to call it out when you see it, because for every time it happens on the right wing, it also happens on the left as well. And it's something I wish people would be more aware of. Um, and before I go further, I will leave it there. Um, but I hope that gives listeners at least a, a, a building block to start with. Well, and I just want to um, uh, read a quotation. This is um, the Anti-Defamation League. Um which tracks anti-Semitic behavior nationwide, so in the United States, found 2,717 incidents of anti-Semitic behavior in 2021. And that's a 34% rise from just the year before and averages out to more than seven anti-Semitic incidents per day. Oh yeah, anti-Semitic hate crime is the highest per capita love of hate crime in the United States, of any of any kind of racism, it is the highest amongst anti-Semitic incidents. And why do you think we don't hear about it in the news more? Because I think people have become more aware of, for example, anti-Asian rhetoric um, in the past year. But And I was certainly aware that there had been more anti-Semitic incidents recently, but I had no idea that it had jumped 34%. Why do you think that it's just not talked about more? Well, can I jump in here for a second? Because Winthrop and I have discussed this a little bit. And one of the things we've looked at cases, for example, on college campuses, and they're severely underreported. Hmm. So the actual case, number of cases, as opposed to the reported numbers of cases of anti-Semitic incidents, is in reality much, much higher than that. Yeah, absolutely. And and the other, I think people don't, it's not a sexy thing to talk about. Society likes to go through, and we've kind of mentioned this too, like what you mentioned earlier about, you know, always wanting to have something that we're at each other's throats about. Because anti-Semitism has been around for so long, it's not new, it's not exciting, it's not like, ooh, let's get all geared up about this. And the other thing I think that people don't like to use it for is because People on both sides of the political aisle in this country are anti-Semitic. And it comes, honest to God, just as equally from the left as it does the right. And people do not understand this. And I think because you can't turn it into this politically divisive, oh, it's them over there doing it, it just doesn't get the same level of, of coverage, I think, because we can't use it to be divisive. Mm. Um, and I think just like in general, people aren't aware, like Holocaust education, and we can talk about this later too, in this country, it sucks. Like 40, the, it, statistic from ABC News, 45% of Americans don't know how many Jews died in the Holocaust. Couldn't give you a number. Wow. You walk into, like if you walk into an average college campus today and said, how many could, people would give you something in the thousands, tens of thousands. Six million is not a number that they even can fathom. And I think that's telling too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that is telling. I think it's also very disturbing to think about, um, going back to the the quote about the Anti-Defamation League, um, that, that that total, 2,717 cases report, reported um, in 2021, that's the highest total tracked 
in more than 40 years of the Anti-Defamation League tracking these, these things. And we should keep in mind that the anti-Semitic acts were actually starting to go down in the United States for almost 15 years. And it was in 2016 that they started to move up again. Um, and now we're at a point where we have nearly tripled the number of incidents today that we did in 2015. Um, in the past year alone, assaults have increased 167%, and um, we've seen incidents of vandalism on the rise, definitely more harassment on the rise. And, and, and when I know you've, you've shared um, personally with me that you've been a victim of harassment. More times than I can count. I mean, my first concussion in middle school was as a result of an anti-Semitic attack. I mean, this is something, if you grow up in this country as a Jewish person, you're just, it's a given you're going to experience it. I mean, Jews on, in New York are beaten on the streets of New York every day. And does it ever make the news? Of course not. No one cares. This happens every single day. Yeah. In 1992, I, um, I traveled um, in Poland. And, you know, it was that same trip where I saw Majdanek and, and Auschwitz. Um, and I remember being in Warsaw and making a point of seeking out the Jewish areas um, which largely in, in most of the cities of, of, um, of Poland still look like ghost towns. They're just shells of what they used to be. And that was 1992. I don't know what's happened, um, since then. Um, but, but we also, my traveling companion and I decided that we were going to try to find a Jewish restaurant to go and eat dinner. And, um, it was very, very hush hush, you know, how to how to get to the to the Jewish restaurant. And we did. We we made our way there. And um, as we were Americans visiting there, they were thrilled to come and meet us and talk to us. And the owner of the establishment came over to talk to us and was telling us that in 1992, so many years after, you know, 50 years, essentially after World War Two, he would um, reg he was regularly being harassed, attacked, beaten up. He said it happens about once a week, wow. and and just just to keep his restaurant open, um, and lots of um, graffiti on you know the synagogues that we saw and his restaurant and you know various other areas, and I mean and and you think about that because there are hardly any Jews living in Poland mm -hmm. to this day. And it used to be the most vibrant Jewish community outside of, of um, outside of Israel. Right. Well, I'm half Jewish, and um, my mother's family escaped um, what was then part of Russia, uh, now Belarus, um, during the pogroms, and so they came over in the 19 teens and 20s. But all of the relatives who stayed behind, as far as we know, were killed. And so just trying to trace that side of my family's history, I was doing some work in Ancestry.com a couple years ago. I couldn't find really anything. I mean, the, there is a little information about the shuttle where they lived online, but no Jews live there anymore, as far as I could tell. And so it's um, that, that whole side of our history is currently lost which is such a such a shame but I don't have any holocaust survivors in my immediate family so I did not grow up hearing about it because they had come over earlier so it's just a very different experience right yeah have you read everything is illuminated yes 
that was such a great, uh, you know, that whole idea of going, going to the place to see what you can find out. Yes. That was a great book. I love that book. Well, should we go on to our discussion of the pros and cons of this book? I do think we should move on to that. (laughs) And and I think, you know, as we've highlighted here, one of the reasons to read the book is the education that we sorely need. Yes. (laughs) And if it it has clearly been, you know, working uh, to educate people, you know, which is why they're banning it. Right. Well, which is why it has been challenged. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I try not to use the vague they. <laughs> right. Um, well, for sure. And, and you know, when the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum was, was established and opened, um, the goal was education. And, and I remember at the beginning when it was first opened, they were collecting stories from survivors or about survivors and artifacts and pictures of those lost um, and, and that's been a very important mission. And, you know, it's, it's a place where people can go and learn facts, just, just the facts, ma'am. This is what happened. This is what was, this is, these are real, you know, primary sources, as we librarians like to say. Um, but not everybody has the opportunity to go to Washington DC and to experience that exhibit, um, which is incredibly moving, which is why I think a book like this which is also an eyewitness account, in a sense. Um, it is um, it is Art Spiegelman writing his father's experiences down, um, that things that really happened to he and his mom, and um, and I think that that's what makes it so powerful and so compelling that it needs to be shared and and read because this really is. Um, as close to a primary source as as a book is going well not as any book but as you know this this source this source is i, I would almost call it a primary source i guess right. yes i mean in you, that sense. you literally see the interview process happening mm-hmm. right and you right. hear the author on the page thinking about what to include you know like it very it's very transparent Right. That way. And I think it'd be really important to read both parts of it, because if you just read part one, you get a sense of the the love story between Vladek and Anya, um, Art's parents. But uh, and you get a sense of how terrible things were getting, but you don't understand the true horrors until you get to part two. And I think uh, if you only read uh, Vladek's experiences, it would be a compelling story on its own. But like Art said, a lot of it, and something you mentioned, Dorothy, is a lot of it is about his relationship with his father and how that's been affected by the Holocaust and the trauma and the guilt. And I think you really need to see all of those pieces to have a better understanding of not only Vladek's generation, but also the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, just how this continues to affect people. I was going to put that uh, under the reasons to read it is this idea of this generational memory and trauma has been, you know, in many discussions that I've heard uh, in the recent past. And um, I first became familiar with it through a folk singer by the name of Utah Phillips, who has a song called the past didn't go anywhere. And, 
he's talking about it in this con uh he was an activist for like pro unions and that sort of thing uh and he's trying to explain that all of that work that was done you know is still with us uh and we're still living it um but i've heard it mentioned many other places and i think it's a it's an important conversation and this does a great job of of doing it it's also worth noting too that intergenerational trauma isn't just some abstract thing it is a diagnosable scientific condition mm-hmm. um i don't know if conditions the best word because it sounds connotative but like i just want to like reiterate that like this isn't just like some concept that has been made up like oh these people are still struggling with stuff they need to get over it like, it affects your genes it's right a brain like something in your brain like yeah and it, yeah yeah it's inescapable yeah so should we discuss the cons a little bit now like what what maybe could Arts Buchman have done differently or why might people be objecting to it in particular? And I did think apparently something that some people have objected to is the choice of pigs for the polls. They object to how Polish people are presented in general, but specifically the choice of that animal. And so maybe if he had chosen a different animal, it wouldn't come under the anti-ethnic category as a reason to be banned. I'm just wondering if that yeah. would have made a difference. You know, well, that's, that's just speciesist. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it, it it read to me like, you know, as someone who has no stake in, in the game here in any way, um, as alliterative, you know, Paul's pigs. Right? Mm, interesting. Um, I mean, the... Germans as cats made sense because the mice. of their relationship to the mice. Right. Um, Americans as dogs I found amusing because it does kind of sum up something about America to me. But um, but yeah, I, I suppose. I Is there an animal that, you know, if you are feeling persecuted that you would not take offense? Has anyone taken offense to the cats and the Germans or the dogs of the Americans? I've heard the pigs, um, pigs is really singled out. Pig is, I mean, in a Jewish context, pig is obviously not kosher to eat or to handle. Um, oh. So I, it's it is worth noting that there is a still to this day strained relationship between the Jewish community and the Polish people yep. in general. That makes sense. Um, and... A lot of it has to do with there is still legislative processes happening in Poland that actively work to deny Jewish survivors, descendants of survivors, from retaining back any like past um, valuables, anything that they would have owned during the 1930s and 40s that were stolen from them, you know, by German soldiers or whoever was around. Um, and there's actively things on the books that are being introduced now that try to prevent. So like. There is still this strain, and I don't want to say it like I don't want to pin it on like all polls because that's absolutely not at all what I'm saying. But there is definitely still a strained relationship, and I know that Holocaust survivors in general have feelings about you know what they wish polls would have done, and that, I think that goes more back to the discussion of you know what people could and should have done at the time, um, because I mean it absolutely is true. Like Jews were marched through the streets of Poland past businesses and towns and i think that's why there's so much perception among survivors but especially of like the damn polls knew what was going on and it's like you know but if obviously if a poll got out of line and said hey this is wrong they would have been shot on the spot so it's it's kind of that give and take relationship too pigs it's how you interpret what a pig means too because i don't disagree winthrop that that might have been 
Art Spiegelman's goal. But I also feel like, okay, you know, those of us who've read Charlotte's Web, the pig is the star in Charlotte's <laughs> Web. So, you know, that doesn't mean that all connotations of pigs is negative. However, I will say this. Um, if you think about the kind of animal these are, so the, the mouse is a prey, is a prey animal. Um, the cat is the number one predator probably that we think of in terms of attacking the mouse. So it made sense for the predator to be the Nazis. Um, and, you know, dogs are like, you know, these, oh, we love everybody type people, which is, you know, that's not type people, type animals. So type that's, animals. <laughs> but that was probably apropos to everyone's view of America, you know, we'll show up and be the heroes. And then, you know, we'll wag our tails and tell everybody how great we are. Just pat our backs <laughs> and scratch our ears. And pigs are farm animals. They're farm animals. And um, it, I, I don't think of it as a negative, a derogatory thing. I think of it personally more as they're just trying to survive. And I think that's what the Poles were trying to do, because the whole history of Poland is they were taken over by the Russians, then they were taken over by the Germans, and they were taken over by the Russians, and then they were taken. And this is the whole history of Poland for generations. And also um, another, you know, thing to think about is the pogroms. Um, you know, Alana, you talked about your family um, escaping the pogroms, but um, my travel companion to to Poland in 1992 his grandmother is descended of Polish Jews and was horrified that we went to Poland because her family had escaped the pogroms and come to America, you know, obviously well before World War II and could not fathom why any Jewish person would ever set foot back in 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 Poland. So there was a whole history of anti-Semitism way long before you know, obviously the Nazis were there. And I, when I think of a farm animal, I think of a farm animal, again, you know, just to repeat, they're just trying to survive. They're taking whatever is thrown at them to, you know, for sustenance. And, you know, they're hoping that they don't get sacrificed. And that seems to be kind of the personality of what, what Poland, the role Poland played in the war. I mean, I don't think frogs for the French was all that appealing either. Oh, I'm sure. The and I think that that just that. comes from the historical connotation because the English disparagingly right. call, call the them French frogs. frogs. Yeah, well, I still think um, it's just alliterative. So, you know, and, and the French were not, you know, uh, a lot of people don't think the French were all that um, great to the Jews during the war either. But that's a whole nother You don't discussion. see that in this book. That right. is not in this book. But anyway. So. Well, it seems... Like, okay, I don't want to say that it is not offensive. You know, uh, there's many different ways this could be interpreted and talked about. And I think that's part of the, the part of the value of discussing these things is to say, hey, if you are, you know, offended, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. And I think even Art Spiegelman could have you know, a conversation Truly. with someone on that topic if we're, you know, really going to dig into how they see the connotations and how he saw the connotations mm -hmm. versus how someone entirely outside sees the connotations. Yeah. Right. And these conversations are, 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 are also difficult too because whatever the, the experience of the Poles had in occupied, when they were occupied in the 30s and 40s, 
was undeniably a horrible experience for them, especially those who were not collaborators and those who were just trying to live an honest life day to day with their family and their kids and what have you. But I also, as a Jew, understand the perspective of, look, I'm sorry, it sucked for you, but we were, there were 6 million of us that were murdered. They tried to get us all. They would have gotten us all had the war lasted six months longer. And that perspective of, look, I'm sorry, that sucked for you, but like, we are not having the same conversation here. Like we're comparing, you know, and obviously any human life taken is a tragedy. Um, there's a Jewish teaching something to the, and I don't have the exact words, but you to kill one life is to kill an entire universe. It's something to the effect of that. And any death is a tragedy, but when you're talking about survival and scale, it can come across depending on the intent of a conversation to be like what it, it basically boils down to what about ism. If you say, hey, what about this? It's like, well, no, that, that we're taking away from what the main point of this should be. Right. We're telling this story yeah. right now. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. I think that's a great point. In the next episode, uh, we will discuss the book in more detail. Uh, it will include some spoilers. So, um, so be aware of that. And please join us next time for a close reading of Mouse's characters, themes, and significance. If, as always, you would like to leave a question or comment, please visit theroguelibrarians.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. And thank you for reading with us. Books, Books are, are meant, meant to be read. read. Bye! Bye.